source of true delight, whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my pleading Open your Bibles with me to 1 John. It's found on page uh, 1021 in your pew Bible if you don't have your own. Um, in addition to Psalm 51, which we read together earlier, um, the sermon will be based on uh, 1 John uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through the second verse of chapter 2. This is a message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you, so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with our Father, uh, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. Would you turn with me? Uh, We're going to begin in Psalm 1, if you'll turn. And it would be good, if you don't have your Bible, to pull that one off out of the pew, uh, and look on page 474 to get to Psalm 51. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to unburden ourselves before you, to truly to confess, to acknowledge our sin. Lord, give us grace that we will hate sin, that sin will grieve us, that we will continually have the grace by your Spirit to turn from sin and to give ourselves more and more to you. And Lord, as the critical part of this, that we can both face the the reality of our sin, the awful reality of our our sin, and not make excuses, not cover it over, but to face the reality and yet, Lord, just as truly face the glorious reality of the forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus, the accomplishment of Christ for us, O oh Lord, may our faith in your mercy, may our expectation, the 
conviction of your accomplishment in Christ all the more enable us to confess our sin so that, Lord, we will walk in fellowship with you, that we will constantly take your side against our sin and because we constantly taste your love, we walk as those renewed and refreshed by the love of Christ, governed by it, encouraged and strengthened and transformed by it so that we more and more live out that love and live out that forgiveness, live out your patience. Bless us, Lord, that we'll have vital, real dealings with God. We thank you that this is what you mean to bring about in our lives. You are our Savior, and you will bring this about for your people, for your people's good and for your glory. We pray. Amen. I think the confession of uh, of our sin, both in a public way and, and and personally, is it's one of the most vital things, but probably the most difficult thing in terms of our relationship to God. It's the most vital because we all know this is really how we began our relationship with God, isn't it? You, know, you read any. Uh, you know, quote, sinner's prayer, uh, the suggested prayer for anyone coming to Christ. Obviously, a vital part of that is, Lord, I- I'm a sinner and I-, I need forgiveness. But we read in Mark 1 that Jesus preached for us to repent and believe, present tense, to keep repenting and believing the gospel. So that this isn't obviously a one-time event, but it's a doorway into the way we live now. So that the tax gatherer's prayer, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner, becomes his way of life, dependent upon God at all times for a right standing with him, dependent at all times in the name of Jesus for a right standing with God. And so... I think that this idea, this this critical notion of confessing our sin, it's not more important than praise, but it plays such a vital part in with praise as a centerpiece of our lives. Even the the commands of Paul to show mercy and kindness and to be humble to one another and to be patient and forbear with one another. He ends that little section in Colossians 3.12 by saying, forgive each other as God has forgiven you in Christ Jesus. Well, it's not an intellectual thing. You know, remember, God's forgiven. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. God's forgiven me. I'm going to forgive him. You know, it's not that. It's it's a constant uh, rooting ourselves in the reality of our forgiveness, experiencing that forgiveness in real way with God. Having, in a sense, the fresh kiss of his love and forgiveness on our cheek that, that conditions us and shapes and chisels us so that we become those kinds of people with others. We're merciful because we've experienced mercy. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We know his patience and forbearance with us because we've experienced it and we continue to experience it. And it's out of that matrix that we live our life. You really can't even think about the Christian life unless there is this vital, rich enjoyment of the forgiveness of God 
through the confession of sin. That's why it's so important as a church when we come together that we confess our sins, that we train ourselves, that we form ourselves as His people to confess our sins. And, of course, confession of sins wouldn't be right unless there was also, as you know we have, the assurance of pardon. We're going to return to this, but it's not just... We're not coming before God to wallow in our sins. The whole point is to experience His forgiveness. To know what it is constantly. To, to, to value more and more and more the cross of Christ in our lives. So, uh, as we come to this passage, Psalm 51, and we'll refer to First John as well. Uh, we have first... His appeal to God in verses 1 and 2. And then we're going to look in second place at his confession in verses 3 through 5. Uh, particularly his confession that his sin against, is against God. And then his confession that his sin is really him. <laughs> okay, there are kind of two parts of this. That I've sinned against you and that this wasn't just an accident. This just wasn't me stepping out of bounds. This was a reflection of what I really am. That's the hard part of confession. That it, it's, it's me. This is really me that did this. But first there's this appeal, and I want you to notice, and, and this is a challenge for you and for me, notice he asks for mercy based on God's steadfast love. God's abundant mercy and, uh, and, and, and God's goodness here. So the, the appeal is automatic right from the start. It is not, and it would be counterintuitive to say, Lord, forgive me because I hadn't done that much bad and I've, brought, I've done some good, which we tend to want to do, right? We, we tend to want to say to God, If we've really been bad, we think it's all the harder for him to forgive us. But our sin is not the basis for his forgiveness. Our doing good is not the basis for his forgiveness. It has nothing to do with it. You can't earn the forgiveness of God. That's ludicrous. But we tend to think that. You know, I'd like to bring some good. So he says, you know, since you've done this good, I can forgive your bad. (laughs) As though if people were applying for uh, financial aid that say, look, I've got some and therefore I just need a little bit. When they say, well, this financial aid is for those who are desperate, for those who don't have anything. That's what this is for. You need to prove that you have nothing, (laughs) right? And and that's the way the approach is here. And he says, Lord, have mercy according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Lord, I look to the unlimited capacity, the unlimited love that you have as the only reason you would forgive me. Okay? It's nothing in myself. I look completely away from myself to you. And he describes his sin with three different words here. He says, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. And by using three different words, he's underscoring the seriousness of his sin. 
the, how complete and thorough his sin is, how full and rich but terrible riches uh, of his sin. <clears throat> Interestingly, when we saw last week Psalm 32, he uses the same three words to describe his sin. He begins saying, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Same three words. But the blessedness that these are forgiven, you see. And later in in that chapter, in verse 5, he says, I acknowledge my sin. I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions. Same three words. So what's interesting about these passages, we bring the fullness of our sin before him and in fullness he takes them away. In fullness he blots them out. Every single one of them is washed thoroughly. The idea of blotting out as though erasing something or cleansing as though cleansing a a filthy garment. And so right away here, uh, he is... Uh, communicating to God that I hold nothing back. Everything can be said about my sin. And the, the words themselves mean slightly different things. For instance, transgression means rebellion. It, it means to, uh, re, to uh, revolt against God, against His authority. Transgression is a fist raised in God's face. Iniquity speaks of being distorted or twisted or perverse, something bent, misshapen. So there's an ugly sight here, something that's not what it's supposed to be, not what it was made to be. And then the word sin has to do with missing a mark, aiming for something and not getting it, like a target, but it's, it's more serious than that. It's the right way to do something and we don't do it. Like there's a right way to defuse a bomb. There's a wrong way. Okay? There's a right way to build a plane or a right way to build a bridge or the right way to clean water for a community. And there's a bad way. And so sin means I have done, I have, I have ruined, I have not walked in the way that would have been prosperous and good and healthy. So with these three words, it's trying to get at the full ugliness and destruction and guilt of sin. And even there, there's, he's not withholding uh, what is there in him. And yet, even then, he's saying, Lord, with all that I'm bringing to you, this full weight of sin, have mercy because of your steadfast love. Have mercy because of your abundant mercy. And I ask you, do you pray like that to God? Do you appeal to Him based on His mercy? And especially now that we are post the cross, to say, Lord, I appeal to you on the basis of what you've done in Christ Jesus, on what I see of your eagerness to deal with sin on the cross of Christ. Your desire, Lord, by sending your own Son and you, Lord Jesus, to bear that punishment Oh, Lord, it helps to convince me that you want to forgive my sin. Because how would you have acted so boldly, so gloriously to deal with sin and then not forgive my sin? See, 
So all the more can we argue this. How much more can we say, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercies, your numerous mercies? Spurgeon had the idea of talking about this of, Lord, according to your many, many, many mercies, let them all be repeated in me. Let them all have their epitome and application in me. Let all those many mercies come to me, O Lord. So, this is wonderful right from the outset that there's this full acknowledgement of sin, but a full acknowledgement of God's love and mercy to forgive sin. But that's the initial appeal. But then, and and there's already a confession kind of uh, connected with that because he mentions transgression and iniquity and sin, but now he really gets into the confessing part of this, doesn't he? Beginning in verse 3. And and here he says, I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, when he says, my sin is ever before me, it means that he is completely convinced of his sin. He is humbled by his sin. He's troubled by his sin. He cannot drown out his sin. He cannot ignore the stench of his sin. It's ever before him. It, it's very much it reminds me of the whatever it was that died under our house a few months ago. And it didn't matter where you went in the house, the stench was there. And they couldn't get to it. We just had to wait for the animal to die. Well, in this case, the animal never dies, right? It just gets worse and worse. The stench begins to affect everything in your life. And as we saw last week with Psalm 32, the life begins to harden and break down and we have no relationship with God uh, if we continue in that way. My sin is ever before me. But here's the real essence of it. Against you and you only have I sinned. This is surprising to us because as we read in the beginning, this is a psalm of David written when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And most of you know that story that Horrible, terrible story of David on the roof seeing this woman, the wife of Uriah, taking a bath on another roof. Sins for her and sleeps with her. And then he tries to cover it by making sure that Uriah comes home and goes into her so that nobody will know that the child is his if she has a child. Right? That she has a child. And, of course, Uriah is more noble than that. And he says, I'm not going to... He's called back from the battlefield. He says, I'm not going to go into my wife when my guys are out in the battlefield. (laughs) David, you know. Tries to get him drunk the next night. That's noble, wasn't it? Maybe if I can get him drunk, he won't care about his men on the battlefield. He'll just go in and sleep with his wife and I'll have this thing taken care of. Then maybe would he confess it? Then maybe? No. What's the 
He, he takes the next step and tells the, the, the leadership, y'all pull back, you go to the city, you get next to the wall, which you never do because then you're in danger of being killed. Y'all pull back. That's the way he said it in Alabama, right? Y'all pull back and leave Uriah and let him get killed. And that's what happened. So, having done this wicked, terrible thing to Bathsheba, to Uriah, to the whole nation, how can you say this, right? How can you say, against you and you only have I sinned? It's remarkable that when we really understand our sin, we're not so concerned at this point about yourself, though you have sinned against yourself in such a thing, or even others, though you've sinned grievously against others, you're not concerned so much about your punishment. You're concerned, how could I sin against such a good God as you are? Because all your commandments, the commandment of adultery, the commandment of murder, they're your commandments. You're the one that gives me life. You're the one that gives me health. You're the one that gives me any ability. We only curse Him with the breath He gives us, right? We only sin with the strength that God gives us to allow us even to live. Van Til would say, God has to hold us up in His arms for us to hit Him in the face. You know, that was His little picture. And of course, all he has to do is drop us into nothingness. And so we're upheld by the strength of God, and by that strength and breath, we hate him or rebel against him. And this came, this came to David. His commands are only good. His commands are according to his wisdom. So this sin is against God's authority. It's against God's goodness. It's against God's wisdom. And I'll tell you, it's only a miracle of God's grace that you can be consumed with the fact that you have hated God Himself. It's a miracle of God's grace. It's the beginning of salvation and the continuing of salvation. And that's why I think sometimes excessive talk about where you're going to go when you die, okay, which... Yes, it's important, and it's a, it's a part of the gospel. But that's all we talk about, and there's never this idea of, what about God himself, the God that made you, the God that sustains you, and the God that has given his son for you? How will you deal with him in relationship to him? Do you love him? Do you trust him? Do you know him? Do you submit to his glorious authority, or do you not? Christianity is not just, hey, I got a ticket to heaven now. It's like I'm in a new relationship with the God that made me. I feel differently toward him now. I have a different attitude toward him. I have a different respect and honor for him because I've seen his glory somewhat in the person of Jesus Christ. So it has to do with this personal relationship with God. You know, that, of course, was Joseph's uh, statement when he was with Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's, uh, Potiphar was gone and uh, 
She's in the home. She says, I'll never tell anybody. We can have this fun whenever you want to. And he said, even though it was against Potiphar, it would be against her, he said, how can I do this thing against God? How can I do this thing against God? doesn't matter that anybody else is around. Nobody will see it. That has nothing to do with it. Don't you understand? It's God that I have to do with. It's Him that I love. It's Him that I treasure. It's His presence that matters to me. And, you know, when He says here, I've done what is evil in your sight. That reminds me of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. We usually read that as you'll have no other gods before me in that sense, right? you have no other gods that will be more important than me. But actually, he means you will have no other gods in my face. You'll have no other gods in my presence. The idea of, you know, husband and children are sitting at dinner and his wife walks in as they're eating dinner and she's bringing a man and they begin right there on the couch. You're like, what? Yeah, that's the feel of this. You bring other lovers in my presence and right in front of me, you will take them as your God. You'll take them and love them right in my face. Well, see, that's the feeling that David had. I did this right in your face. You were there. You're intimate. You're intimate in all places. And right before your glory and your goodness, I said, I don't care. That's the sense that he has here. And we can, we only sin when we get God out of the picture. You know, we we want to think of him as distant. He's aloof. He's not caring. He's... Uh, he, he's detached, he's disinterested, he's distracted. Just, I can't, I can't sin freely if God is present and he's good and great. If you're convinced God is good and great and that, that's welling up, that's fresh and lively to you, it, it, it's, it's murder on sin. It's just murder on sin. And you have that kind of love and, honor to God. And that's difficult, isn't it? It's difficult to maintain this. Or we like to think of God as really unholy, just going to pat me on the head and say, go along, it's okay. We, we just Anything we can do to make him into a different kind of God. But here, this sin is done against him. So, you know, we say sometimes in the uh, abortion argument, we are, and we're right to say when uh, in arguing for abortion, the old slogan was used so many times and still is used, it's my body, right? It's my body. So, hands off my body. I'll do with my body whatever I want to. And, of course, first of all, we say... You know, actually, it's like Wayne Stasekill's little cartoon with the two little uh, kind of babies up in heaven. And one of them, and they're both have been, or at least this one has been aborted. And he says, after all, it was my body. You know, making the point that there are two bodies, right? Y'all don't even share the same blood. You may be female. 
he's male. It's not the same body. Or if it's a young female, what about her body? Is it only grown females or young females' bodies that are to be protected, right? There are all kind of arguments here. But all that being said, and, and yes, all that's true. It is another body. But you don't even have a right over your body, right? Your body is sustained by God. Your body is given to you by God. Your body is a privilege from God. You're His creation. And actually, the only thing we really have, Samuel Page, an older writer, says, sin is our natural wealth. Sin is all that we can really call our own. We've received everything else we have by mercy. And it's borrowed from God and we depend upon God for it. Here's what we did. Here's what we made. Here's what we came up with. This is what we truly own. This is our truest possession. And David says it. It's my sin. It's my sin. And I've sinned against you. And he not only says this, that I've sinned against you, I've done this evil in your sight, so that there's full justification in your judgment. If you, as you judge me, no one can say, well, that's not, no, it's, it's absolutely fair. It's absolutely righteous. I deserve full judgment. That's why we have as our confession, as we've said before, the very first question, do you see yourselves as sinners before God, justly deserving his displeasure? Those, are, those words are framed very carefully. So that, of course, we all can say yes to things we don't believe in, but at least the Opportunity is to confess truly, yes, I see myself as a sinner and I deserve justly his displeasure. It's a reflection of this text. But he goes on to say, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. And in this, he is talking about the fact that It's not just a freak accident that he has sinned, but that this is a part of his life. This is what he is. It's very easy for us to say, I've sinned. It's harder for us to say, as that first question asks, do do you see yourself as a sinner? As a sinner. It's what Jesus says, isn't it, in Matthew 15. When his disciples were being called on the carpet by the Pharisees because they weren't washing their hands properly and they would therefore be defiled when they ate. And Jesus says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This is what defiles a person, not what goes into him. As though, you know, if I could just be by myself, I could be sin free because I wouldn't have all you around, right? Anybody else that would make me sin or anything in this world that would make me sin, then I could be pure because I'd just be by myself. As we said before, it's like the old Abbott and Costello thing where they nail the door shut and they put 800 uh, you know, pieces of furniture in front and they turn and there's Frankenstein right there in the, in the room. And that's what we have. We have Frankenstein right here in our hearts. Um, and so Jesus says... Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. It's not the nicest thing to say about people. 
Jesus says, that's where all this stuff comes from. It comes from your heart. And as you've heard me say before, it's not just that your mind is in the gutter, your mind produces the gutter. That's the issue. David says, it is me. This wasn't an accidental thing that just happened. This was evidence of what I am. This was a showing of my true character. This is where I came from. This is inexcusable because this is what I am. Interesting that Jesus says the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And in Romans 3, when Paul is talking about sin, the sin he talks most about is the sin of the tongue. And in James 3, when James is talking about sin, he, he, he zeroes in on the tongue. He says, if you can control the tongue, you can do anything because the, the tongue is so full of evil. I think it's because there is no filter. There's not even a long pipe between the heart and the tongue. Just whatever the heart feels, then it just dumps out in the tongue. Because that's what you are. That's, that's where your heart is. Sometimes it just gets to the mind, and even then, of course, there's great wickedness. But there is, there is from David no excuse here, is there? There is no hiding, no blaming anything. He says, it is me, it is me, it is me. And we need so much more of that in our relationships to one another because in marriage after marriage and relationship after relationship, It's amazing how two people can sit there and he's defending his territory, she's defending her territory, he's blaming her, she's blaming him. And they're both right, right? They're both right. But it would be great if you come in and he owns his stuff. He says, this is what I'm doing wrong in this relationship. And she said, this is what I'm doing wrong in this relationship. Then we'd be a lot more like David, right? That's our difficulty, isn't it? Seeing ourselves and, and having the grace to admit ourselves uh, to ourselves what we are, what we've become, how we've sinned against each other. And in this process as well, one of the issues that we have is in, we actually, I think, in many cases, refuse the comfort of God's forgiveness uh, because we don't want to be consoled. We like to heed, we, we feel like sometimes we need the attention of our continual struggle with sin. There's a kind of responsibility in really being forgiven of your sin. Well, if you've thought about this, there's a real responsibility in being forgiven uh, because then if You've been shown mercy. You're called to mercy. If God's not merciful, if He's not good and kind, then I can keep my distance from this God. I can keep, I can hold on to my life. I can excuse myself even for disobedience, and I don't have to honor Him and give my whole life up to Him if I admit how merciful and good He is. Then life's over as I knew it. I can't belong to myself anymore. I must belong to this gracious God who would forgive me of all my sin. And so there's, it's interesting how we can push off from God's mercy because of the kind of danger that that mercy is to us. 
It's dangerous to our pride. It's dangerous to our self-righteousness. It's dangerous to our sense of strength. It's dangerous to have to say, like David says here, it's me, I'm the one in sin, and to come to this God and receive mercy. We like things bent in on ourselves, either that our sin has been in on ourselves and we're wallowing in our guilt or the circumstances around us. It's kind of an extension of that is the, that our circumstances make us become victims as well. There's that whole world of which we get bent in on ourselves instead of receiving the mercy and love and, of God and walking in new freedom to push out in love to other people. <clears throat> A great illustration of this was my uh, grandson, Easton, a few weeks ago. When we were in Midland, uh, we had our, our, our granddaughter, uh, Harper's three, Easton's a uh, year and a half, and Kay and I had put them to bed Tuesday night, the night that uh, Melly, our daughter-in-law, had our third grandson, uh, Cohen. Not C-O-I-N, as I pronounce it, but C-O-H-E-N, <clears throat> Charles Cohen. Okay, so we're, we had spent the night with them. She gave birth early morning, 3.30 or so. And so this morning we have gone to uh, Chick-fil-A, got a strawberry milkshake for Melly, and we've got food for Chase, and we're walking in the parking lot, okay? So Kay has the drinks in her hand, and somehow with the jostling of Harper the strawberry milkshake comes out, explodes. You know. well, it gets all over Harper, and she's, it's so funny. She says, my mama won't want to see me this way. <laughs> We're like, yeah, you probably should move to San Antonio now. She's over with you now. She sees this strawberry milkshake on you. <clears throat> okay, so, so Kay... I mean, she is on it in a second. She's got the bag open. She's changing her clothes, you know. And obviously, I need to take Easton at this point. Go get another strawberry milkshake, right? So, get Easton. And and though Easton was holding on to me later in the room, he wouldn't even go to anybody because he wanted to come to me, you know, and all that kind of stuff. At this moment, that was not fitting his plan. He did not want to go in the car. He did not want to leave Kiki. He did not want to leave Harper. And he kind of had this sense that he was going to go see his mom and daddy. So we get to the car, and he is going crazy, you know, crying. And I'm like, okay, you know, you're going in the seat, you know. <laughs> and I love the move that he made right at that point. I got him in the seat. And this boy is never without his pacifier, okay? Never. It's always there. It's his constant comfort. It's constant strength. And he get him in the seat, and he's like, throws it down into the floorboard. I just love that move. Just like, and I take it as life's not worth living anymore, you know. <laughs> or maybe it was even this passy is an offense to me, you know, out of my sight. I have no friends, no life, no future. I'm out of here, you know, that passy. Or maybe it was, I, I took it as basically this, and this is where it really hits home. I will not be consoled. Because <laughs> that's his consolation. You know. I will not be consoled at this moment. 
And I thought about, and I know this is uh, pushing it a little bit, but I really think that we are like that in regard to the promises of God. When tough things happen to us, when we fall into sin, so many times we take the promises of God and we just rip them out of our mouth. They're our comfort, they're our strength, they're the whole way we can live out the relationship we have with God in the midst of difficulty and sin and struggle is to keep clinging to His grace and His goodness. But we will not be consoled, you know. When people say, all things work together for good, I don't want to hear it, you know. This is going to be good for you, I don't want to know about it. God will forgive. I don't want to hear. You see, we just push away the promises and the grace and mercy of God. And in this way, we begin to turn every negative thing into an excuse for further negativity in our life, a further confirmation that God is against me. Uh, I don't, I'm not responsible for my sin. Uh, and so in every circumstance, Instead of experiencing his mercy and love and then seeing my responsibility to live out that love in a circumstance, I'm all bent in at what's being done to me. You see, interestingly, confession frees you to push out and give yourself to others. Because you have a sense of God's love, you have a sense of forgiveness, and you realize whatever anyone does to me is not near what I've done to God. And it frees you from resentments. It frees you from looking down on others. It frees you to walk in the joy of love instead of wallowing either in your sin or wallowing in your circumstance. It's interesting how Paul describes repentance in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He says, the repentance of, uh, the godly repentance leads to salvation without regret. The repentance of the world leads to death. So there's a sorrow. There's a repentance, a sorrow of the world that leads to death, a sorrow just about circumstances and a sorrow about sin and wallowing and all of this. That's not Christianity. Christianity is in the midst of difficulty and sin. I come to this God who shows abundant mercy, who is full of steadfast love, and I pour my heart out to Him and I cling to Him and I find Him in His promises. And... This indication of steadfast love is also a a statement that we're in relationship with Him. We're in a covenant relationship with Him. It's a covenant statement. It's like that uh, odd, ironic statement where the prodigal son comes home and he says, Father, I don't deserve to be your son. But he addresses him as Father. You know, I love that. Or when Jesus commands us, to ask for forgiveness of sins, we start by addressing him as what? Our Father. See, we're in relationship. And like 1 John says here, there is, yes, a life of walking in darkness that he says indicates that we don't know him. But on the other hand, if we say we have no sin, we're not of the truth. So where is it? It's in this struggling middle, isn't it? Not just living a life of total disregard for God's Word, but also recognizing 
we'll never be perfect in this life. And so we have a life of confession, a life of struggle, a life in which we're continually resting in the mercy of God. And that mercy is so sure. It's so sure that the infinite God has accomplished it. And the infinite God has accomplished it to his own satisfaction. You see, in Romans 8, Paul says, hey, if Jesus is standing before the Father and has has died for sins, and the Father has said that we're justified, nobody else can say anything. Nobody. God has acted in His infinite power to rescue us from our sins, and He's done it so that He Himself is satisfied in what He's done. Isn't that wonderful? It's not a matter of you satisfying. God has satisfied His own justice by satisfying it in His Son. And so, He freely gives forgiveness to us. And on top of that, This is the way that he chooses to glorify his name in this world. Is for helpless, broken, run-down sinners of the worst kind to find forgiveness. That's how he's going to glorify his name in the earth. And the, the step up from... Old Testament revealing of his love to New Testament. It, it's like a little book that suddenly opens up and it's a 20,000 square foot mansion you know, of what is opened up in Christ Jesus. If you're having a conversation with God and you're saying, Lord, all these sins that are that you're passing by in the Old Testament in this period of time, we see the animal sacrifices, but they continue and they continue, and it's like it's not really satisfied. I mean, what about your justice? Can you imagine what it would be like for God to say, I'm going to take flesh and I'm going to bear sin? Like, what? What? You're going to what? I'm going to take flesh and I will bear sin myself. We, we, we can't imagine that. We can't believe it. And yet that is what he has done. He's accomplished it in his son. And so this provides us with the capacity, as John says, to openly profess our sin and confess our sin because we have an advocate. We have an advocate. And he's our propitiation. And so I urge you, if you've not been confessing your sins, to walk in that joy, walk in that freedom, walk in that transparency as it begins to bring transparency in your relationships, transparency in this church. And think what kind of church we can become to those who come in who are in sin as we show this kind of love. Let us pray. Lord God, we pray that you would bless us in your favor to believe in your abundant mercy. O Lord, open up our hearts to see your goodness and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, 
and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night, and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away?